call it the man, call it the government, call it lizard people, call it whatever you want, but I bet if you polled the South, nine people out of ten would tell you they hate the establishment, even if they can't agree on who that is. Right. It's the establishment, after all, that rigs the SEC schedule for Alabama every single year. It's the establishment that stacked the deck against you getting decent health care, decent job, or living the life you want to live. Southerners love to glamorize fights against the establishment, and then to turn around and vote consistently along party lines more than any other region in the country. Everyone may be fighting the establishment, but the establishment always seems to win. But maybe that's changing. There's more to this discussion than partisan politics, of course, but in poll after poll, we're starting to see some of the most inelastic states look a little more like swing states. And we're starting to see a few cracks in the establishment on the right and on the left. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm John Hammondry. And I'm Arl Nave. Today we're talking about the establishment, whatever it is, and what it looks like in 2020. Our first guest is Jamie Harrison, the Democratic candidate who is polling neck and neck with Senator Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. Now, the former head of the South Carolina Democratic Party and a longtime protege of the Democratic congressional leader, James Clyburn, may not be the first person you think of when you think about anti-establishment fights in the South. But the man has already raised insane amounts of money. But Harrison is one of the many Democratic candidates who's in a surprisingly tight race with his Republican opponent. And these people are basically doing it on their own because for decades, the national Democratic establishment had written off the South investing neither time nor resources into candidates in the region. We chat about the challenges candidates like Harrison have faced running in the heart of the old Confederacy and flipping the conventional wisdom about the party on its head. Also, what do you do when your entire party seems to have flipped its conventional wisdom on its head? Dana Hall McCain is a conservative columnist and activist in Alabama. She joins us in the second half of the show to discuss how to stay true to your values even if it seems like your party's establishment has cast them aside. The parties are changing. And the South is changing. So let's talk about it on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Jamie Harrison, welcome to The Reckon Interview. How are you? I'm great. Thank you all for having me. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, we're excited too. You know, your life story is one that I think will resonate with a lot of Southerners. Born to a young mom, raised by your grandparents. Can you talk a little bit about how that experience shaped your worldview and the issues that you're passionate about today? Yeah, so many folks across the South have very similar stories. But my mom was 16 when she had me, and she had to stop school for a while. And I was raised by my grandparents, who didn't have a whole lot of money, didn't have a whole lot of education themselves. My grandfather had a fourth grade education. Uh, he quit school to work at a dairy and then he did construction most of his life. My grandmother had an eighth grade education. She quit school. She had to go work and she picked cotton and then she worked at textile plant. She did domestic work. So they didn't have a whole lot, but they were still rich in terms of the values that they had. They taught me the value of hard work and they taught me the value of helping other folks. And those are the things that to this very day, still live with me and still push me. I was the first in my family to go to college. Uh, I went to Yale University and then Georgetown Law School. After coming graduating from Yale, though, I came back and actually taught ninth grade social studies at my alma mater for a little while, which was an interesting thing. And, and it sparked my love of education. When I, think, and when I think about my life, part of how I've achieved so much is because I had a strong educational foundation. 
even though our schools were not the, the most well-funded, I, I still had, uh, you know, the basics that I needed in order to go on and do well and to break out of the cycle of poverty that we were in. But the way that I grew up really shapes how I look at the world in so many ways. There are a lot of good people out there. There are a lot of smart people out there, but there are a lot of institutional barriers to them breaking out and living the American dream. I was fortunate enough and lucky enough to do so. Uh, and education was a gateway and the path for me to do that. But there's so many other roadblocks that folks have right now. And I believe part of the job of a senator or a congressperson or a legislator is to do the blocking and tackling uh, that needs to be done because what life presents itself so that everybody gets the opportunity to be the, as great as they possibly can be. Part of our challenge here in South Carolina, our senator hadn't done a good job of doing that. And that's why I'm in this race. Jamie, we've spent a lot of this season of The Reckon Interview kind of looking at the long history of Southern politics. And I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, starting in around the 1990s, the National Democratic Party kind of pulled resources out of the South and, and ceded a lot of the ground to Republicans who have established the South as a stronghold. Uh, you led the South Carolina Democratic Party for a while. You're involved with the DNC leadership. It feels like this year is maybe a turning point. You've got Georgia in play. You've got South Carolina surprisingly in play. I think it's fair to say North Carolina's in play. Ryan and I go back and forth about whether or not Mississippi is in play. But what has changed and what does the party still need to do to turn the South purple? Yeah, you, you know, we all know, particularly those of us in the South, know those famous words from LBJ that, that we may have lost the, the South for a generation. And Instead of fighting back against those words, I think the, the party just kind of ceded that <laughs> and didn't invest because uh, of the politics. I think we're starting to see a turnaround. I think we are starting to see candidates that reflect the values, the hopes, the aspirations and fears of their constituents stepping up. I think you saw that when Stacey Abrams ran, uh, Beto O'Rourke ran, uh, and we've won some races. We've transformed Virginia. I mean, just a few years ago, when you think about where Virginia was, Virginia was just as red as South Carolina or Alabama or Mississippi. And now it's a totally blue state. Uh, and it's because of some investments. It's also changing demographics. And I think you're seeing those similar type of changing demographics across the South. You got reverse migration that's taking place. African-Americans whose forefathers and foremothers Generations before who went to the Midwest and the Northeast are now coming back home because there's some opportunity there, and that's influencing the politics. You're also seeing a lot of folks from the industrial Midwest and Northeast that are moving and retiring in the South, and they're bringing a much more moderate style of politics to the South with them, and that's changing demographics and changing the political landscape in these communities. And so I often talk about a new South that is rising, and, and that, is, that is the case. And I think this election cycle is going to be one where we finally close the book on the old South and really start reading that new book called The New South, one that's bold, inclusive, diverse, where everybody is valued and all voices are heard. And so I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about being a part of that process, uh, continuing the legacy that, that was laid over the past few years. But we, we got to continue to go out and recruit, but we also got to continue to invest in these regions. We can't cede any territory. Some of the more prominent voices in the Democratic Party right now, you know, do represent coastal regions, you know, New York, California, and may be advocating policies that are harder to win in southern states. How do you walk that line between, you know, being part of the national democratic movement, but also running on local issues? 
Well, I, I tell folks all the time before I'm a Democrat, I'm a black man. I'm a South Carolinian. I'm an American. And so, you know, when I started this race, my whole message to, to everyone is that this is not about Democrats versus Republicans or progressives versus conservatives. Those are the battles you have in D.C. This is about what's right versus what's wrong. And when you think about what's going on here in South Carolina, you take party off. There are a lot of things that are going wrong right now, and they need to be addressed and they need to be fixed. When you got rural hospitals that are closing, the people in those communities don't care if it's a Democratic solution to keep their hospital open or a Republican solution. They just want their hospital. When they, they drive over a pothole or the fact that they live in a community that doesn't have broadband or Internet, again, it doesn't matter for them if it's a Democratic broadband or Republican broadband. They don't care. They just want broadband in their communities. And so I'm talking about those issues in that light and in that form, because, again, it's basic, fundamental kitchen table issues that people need to be addressed. And we haven't had the leadership that's been doing that over the past few years, but I'm focused on it like a laser. I've rolled out a rural hope agenda for how we rebuild and revitalize rural communities. Lindsey Graham's been there for 25 years, and he probably doesn't even know anything about rural communities, because unless it's between him going to Sean Hannity's studio, that's the only time that he's aware of it. So I'm focused like a laser on what people are dealing with and the, the lives that they, they have here in the state. And I think that's part of our attraction. That's part of why we have garnered so much attention. Just to dig in a little bit more there, I mean, the state of California the other day said that they were going to ban sales of new gas-powered cars. You know, you, you think of some of these issues that kind of dominate the conversation and sort of national democratic politics, like the Green New Deal. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, in politics understand, like, why these kinds of things might be good to lower-income folks, rural folks. But how do you make the case to folks in the South who may live in more rural places, have lower incomes, that, like, these things that National Democrats are actually not as scary as as they sound? Yeah, I sort of tongue-in-cheek always say that I want to start a new group called the Dirt Road Democrats folks who, are, who know what it's like growing up on a dirt road and the challenges, but also the joy of living in communities that are just like that. You know, for many times, I think people get so caught up into, you know, the glitz and glam, the people and positions and, and the bills, and they got to dig down a, a layer deeper and get to what are the underlying interests. You know, if you live in a rural community in South Carolina and you see that we are having constant flooding, then the question is, why is that? What is creating that? Why are we in that position? When you are a farmer in South Carolina, you're a soybean farmer, and you get frustrated that now you can't sell your soybeans to China. Why is that? What is the underlying interest? What, what has motivated this? How do we address these things? You live on the coast. You know, here in South Carolina, tourism is our largest industry. $24 billion came into South Carolina in 2018 in terms of tourism. And many of that, much of that is coastal tourism, going to Myrtle Beach and Charleston and Hilton Head. And, you know, when they start talking about drilling off the coast of South Carolina, what impact does that have on you? What happens if there's an oil spill? How will that impact your environment? But how will that impact your livelihood? So what I'm trying to do is drill down a, a layer deeper in terms of my conversations with the people of South Carolina and really talk about the things that they are experiencing. And then bring them back up and say, this is the source of that. 
And so in order for us to really tackle these barriers for you and these issues that you're dealing with, we got to go to the root cause, this bigger thing that's looming out large. That's why it's important. That's why Democrats are talking about these issues, because they are now trickling down into your community, into your neighborhood, and they're having an impact on how you live your life. And they could have an even larger impact on the lives of your kids in 10 and 20 and 30 years from now. And so will it be easy in terms of some of these transitions? No. But I think if we are thoughtful about it, if we work with the people in those communities, we can find ways to transition ourselves so that it's overall better for all of us. And so, uh, you know, I try not to get caught up in the, the battles on Green New Deal and this and that. But look at the, what are the underlying interests? The one thing we know for sure, climate change is here. It is real. These hurricanes that are being spawned up out of the Atlantic at a much more frequent pace than when I was a kid are real. The ones that you are seeing constantly hitting the Gulf Coast are real. The thousand-year floods that are now taking place every other year are real. There's a reason why Charleston is now looking at building a wall because the sea level is rising and that impact is real. So what are we going to do in order to address that? We have to do something. We can't just hope and pray and say that, you know, things are going to get better. Because we also know in the Bible, it says faith without works is dead. So, you know, we got to put in the work to address the issues that, that are having an impact on people right now. And, and I'm willing to work with anybody, Democrats, Republicans, independents, men and women from Mars and Venus. It doesn't matter as long as we make some progress to, to really improve the lives of the people in my state. Uh, you mentioned being willing to work with anybody. A black candidate has never won a Democratic seat in the South. But there in South Carolina, of course, Senator Tim Scott has won as a Republican. Do you think that that opened the door for white moderates in South Carolina maybe being more open to voting for a black candidate? Maybe it did. You know, Tim enjoys great favorability here in South Carolina. There are a lot of people who like him. I mean, I like Tim. He's a nice guy. We don't agree on a, a lot politically, but in terms of who he is and, and I think where his heart is, I think there's a lot of common ground between the two of us. And so, you know, I'm looking forward to getting into the U.S. Senate and working with them and finding ways that we can work together. And I believe in the end of the day that if you can talk to people about their concerns, many of this other stuff is ancillary. Because, you know, for the first time, if they're hearing, you know what? Yes, we do need to have broadband here. And why hasn't Lindsey Graham had broadband here for 25 years? You know, he's been in, in Washington for 25 years. And just now he's talking about broadband. Why is that the case? But this guy, this new guy, Jamie, he's talking about it. You know, I think it is really talking about folks and relating to them in a way where they feel as though that you actually are going to fight for them, that you actually hear them in terms of the concerns that they have. And I think we're going to get enough of those voters. Now, there are some voters out there that if you just have a D by your name, they, there's no way in the world that they will ever vote for you. That's fine. But, you know, even those folks, I always tell them, when I get elected, I'm still going to represent you. I'm going to work for you and work as hard for you as I work for anybody who actually voted for me, because that's what the job's all about. And so, you know, I hope that race is not an issue. Now, Lindsay has darkened the color of my skin in, in an ad. But, you know, I expect all of those little, all of those types of tricks. But I'm still going to win this this race and Lindsay's going to lose this job. And the momentum's on our side to demonstrate just that. 
we don't like to spend too much time talking on polls and, and horse race kind of stuff. But I mean, if you look at how you're performing in the polls, a black Democrat in South Carolina like doesn't get there just with black support, right? So you're obviously appealing to moderates, maybe younger folks. Do you have any sense of like what specific kinds of things you're talking about that's appealing to those kinds of people who like would have been those folks uh, a generation ago who wouldn't have looked at a candidate with a D by their name in, in South Carolina? Well, you know, the difference, I think, between me and, and a lot of other Democrats is I'm talking about values. I'm talking about values because the people in South Carolina and I think people in the South are very values heavy. You know, and that's really important to them. That's how it's the lens by which they look at the world. And again, just on the healthcare thing, when I talk about healthcare, I talk about it in a values frame and in a value sense, because when you live in a community that has lost their hospital, they don't care when it takes you now, instead, it used to take you 15 minutes to get to your hospital. It takes you 40 or 45 minutes now to get to your hospital. That's a death sentence for, for some people, depending on what the ailment is. And they really don't care if it's a Democratic solution or a Republican solution. They don't care if Jamie Harrison came up with the idea or Lindsey Graham came up with the idea. What they want is the solution to the problem that they're dealing with. And that is what I'm doing. And, you know, Lindsey Graham just doesn't fit South Carolina anymore. He doesn't talk about those things anymore. What he talks about is the latest conspiracy about, you know, Russia and all this. That's not putting food on the table for folks. That's not addressing the issues that they're having on health care. That's not helping them overcome their barriers. But I'm talking about those things in a way that is a values-based way not a, a partisan way, but a values-based way. And I think that is appealing to, to folks. I'm also, my message is one of hope as opposed to the one of fear and chaos. Whereas Lindsey Graham is trying to scare people to vote for him, I'm trying to inspire people to vote for me. That is a very different frame. That's a very different way to look at the world because I'm trying to bring our state together, not to divide it. The way that we talk, the ads that we run, all demonstrate that there's two distinct personalities here, but two distinct pathways for how we go forward as a state. Do we go forward in a divided measure or do we come together unified as a state to move forward, looking to our future or do we look back to our past? So again, two different distinct ways and I think different distinct paths. And in the end, the people of South Carolina are going to have to make a decision on which way they want to go. We kind of started out talking about this, but, you know, immediately after college, I interned with a progressive advocacy group in D.C., and they had playbooks for every state in the country except for two, your state and mine, Alabama and South Carolina, that they said that those states weren't even worth investing any money in. A friend of mine recently said that you you have raised more money than God, <laughs> that you, you have all sorts of money coming in. Does that kind of show the narrative that investing in states like South Carolina and Alabama put those states in play? Also, have you spoken with Senator Jones at all about you know running in these two states that are demographically very similar? I know Doug because I actually spent a lot of time in Alabama to help Doug win that race. And I convinced folks at the DNC and the DSCC that it was worth investing in because you got to invest in the South. We have to stop ceding territory. And it's one of my biggest frustrations. When you look at states like Maryland and Vermont and Massachusetts, what do they have in common? These are blue states, some of the bluest states in the nation, but they all have Republican senators. 
And if if Republicans took this philosophy that we the Democrats have adopted, which is, oh, those are certain states we can't invest in them, then you wouldn't have Republicans governors right now. But when we invest, Democrats can win. We have a Democratic governor in Kentucky. And Kentucky is redder than South Carolina. We have a Democratic governor in Louisiana. Louisiana is tougher than South Carolina. We have a Democratic governor in North Carolina. We got a Democratic senator in Alabama. So it's about, in order to win a game, you got to get on the field. Ultimately, that's what this is all about. It's like making sure we get on the field. And then if we got good talent, because we have great talent down here. I mean, look at what Stacey Abrams was able to do in Georgia. Stacey should have won that, but for voter suppression. When you purge hundreds of thousands of voters that would have gone for her, then yeah, you're probably going to win that race. But, you know, if it was an even playing field, she would have won that hands down. And so we we just got to, you know, I think Andrew Gill, the same way, Beto O'Rourke, we just got to figure out, let's get people on the field, let's play, let's invest in these communities. When we're able to do so, it's amazing the transformations that we can make. Now, in addition to my race in South Carolina, we are only five seats down in terms of having the majority in the South Carolina Senate. We are probably closest, have the closest margin in any Southern state as it relates to getting back control of of the Senate in our uh, state. And so my race will have coattails. It will have an impact on those down ballot races. And now think about what happens if Democrats take back the South Carolina Senate. We are now about to approach reapportionment. That's a game changer. We got seven congressional seats here. Two with Democrats, right? One is a sure bet. Joe Cunningham's is precarious based on the way it's drawn. But now when the South Democrats control the South Carolina Senate, what does that mean? Probably means that we have at least three Democratic seats compared to four. So, I mean, it's about making sure that we're investing and we're looking long term um, because that's really important. Yeah. I mean, you talked about putting players on on the field. You know, every four years we have, you know, these very important conversations about making sure that people are registered to vote and actually getting out to vote. But I'm also interested in, you know, how do we encourage folks, especially young people, to seek out opportunities to actually serve, to run for public office? You know, these local boards and commissions that always have all these vacancies are great places for people to start a career in public service. But we don't tend to have that conversation because, you know, the stakes are so high every four years. You know, how do we start to have that conversation on November 4th? Well, man, I even wrote a book called Climbing the Hill, How to Build a Career in Politics and Make a Difference. I just bought it. Yes. (laughs) Um, And I also started a fellowship here in South Carolina to do just that, to build the next generation or not even the next generation, today's generation of leaders, because we didn't have a bench when I became chair of the party. And so I had to build one. And our Clarence Fellowship has transformed the Democratic Party in South Carolina. These young folks are running for state house. We've had one run for Congress before. We, we have them running for school board. Who Some sit on college boards of trustees. They are changing the game. Our first Latina county party chair is a Clarence Fellow. We have fundamentally transformed politics in the Democratic Party through that fellowship. And now we have this group that is not only focused on their individual things that they're doing in politics, but now are a collective that they are there to support each other as they run for office each year. And so 
it's those type of things that are really important to me. And I tried, you know, when I ran for DNC chair, one of the things I was running on was to build a type of fellowship like that in every state to make sure that we could fund something like that to build the bench because we got talented people, but we got to train them so that they know how to fundraise. So they know how to use digital. So they know how to reach out to people, uh, how to message. All of those things are really important components to having a, a viable party. And all states need a viable two-party system because they provide checks on each other. Anytime you get one that's just too, too powerful, too much in control, the, the power goes to the head. And so I, I do believe you, you need a vibrant two-party, at least a two-party system, but a vibrant two-party system to keep it interesting, to keep each other on our toes. And so um, that's what we've tried to build here in South Carolina. Before Lindsey Graham held the seat that you are now running for, it, it was held by uh, Strom Thurmond, I believe. Before Strom, it was Ben Pitchfork Tillman, a man who talked about the joys of lynching black folks. And before Ben Tillman, it was John C. Calhoun. So what would it mean for you, but also for South Carolina, you know, the, the first state to secede from the nation, start of the Civil War, to win that seat? It'd be tremendous. It'd be absolutely tremendous. And I think it would say, send a statement to the rest of the country about South Carolina and where we are. And again, it's about closing the book on the old South and that we're looking forward to our future, which is a bright one. And it would give give the seat back to the people and to all of the people, not just a select few. And, and so I'm excited about the prospects. I'm excited about the history. I'm excited about you know, this new chapter in the South. I went to school in the Northeast and I know the perception that Northeasterners and uh, the rest of the country have about the South that, you know, they think we're backwards. They think, you know, all those other stuff. And I understand that we have some of the best people in the world, probably part of the most beautiful aspect of, of this country. The landscape is in the South. The problem we've had historically is we've just had the worst leadership. It's been feckless. And I think Lindsey Graham has been emblematic of that. If we start to change up some of that leadership, you will see the, the South blossom into the beautiful flower that she really is. And so uh, I'm happy to be a part of that process. Thanks to Jamie Harrison for his time. We want to take a quick moment to let you know that we've reached out to Republican candidates several times throughout the season, and I've not yet found anyone willing to come on the show. So we offer this as a standing invitation to Senator Graham and any of his colleagues to please come on the Reckon interview. But there are a lot of interesting changes happening on the Republican side of the aisle as well, and we want to make sure that we're talking about those. So after the break, Dana Hall McCain walks us through the changes in the conservative movement. For AL.com. I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is. My mask protects everyone else and everyone else's mask protects me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing. I hope that's not the case, but we're committed to, to being open. Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Dana Hall-McCain, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Dana, we've known each other for a few years now, and you know, I followed your career at AL.com, at the Alabama Policy Institute, you know, as, a, as a freelance columnist. And you've always been somebody who's been kind of willing to speak out against party orthodoxy if it doesn't 
adhere to your conservative beliefs and stances. I think it's fair to say that in the last five years, the Republican establishment has changed a lot because of one particular force, Donald Trump. What have you seen happen in the last five years and how have you kind of wrestled with it as a conservative woman living in the South? It has been interesting because the party that I've known all my life and and been involved with all my life and certainly, you know, the slate of candidates that I have always supported with with no reservation have have shifted a lot. You know, I grew up in a Republican home and, and we were Republicans because of the sort of the core ideals of conservatism. We, we felt like that matched up with our faith worldview the best and that it also just made the most sense in so many other ways with regard to how the U.S. Constitution reads and how economics work in the real world. And so I've always been very comfortable and felt like the party was faithful to its core ideals. But we did see a shift and it probably happened quietly under the radar for a few years prior to Donald Trump coming down that escalator. But when he entered the scene and decided to run as a Republican, we really became a party that was driven as much by populism as by conservatism. And so that has been somewhat distressing to what is admittedly a minority of us in in conservative circles, but a vocal minority nonetheless, and one that I'm happy to be a part of because I value consistency and integrity. And I feel like, you know, if I believed that runaway federal spending and rising debt was a problem in a Democratic administration, it's still a problem today, you know, and all sorts of things like that where populism isn't necessarily consistent with what I think conservatism should be. Well, and Let's go back to the courts because that has been kind of an unabashed victory for conservatives, even predating Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell did a very good job of filibustering Barack Obama's nominees to the court, including a, a Supreme Court seat. And, you know, in the last four years has been able to confirm almost every judicial nominee that Trump has put forward, you know, from Supreme Court on down to other other federal courts. Uh, of course, culminating in the current conversation about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat that Amy Coney Barrett has been nominated for. How do you feel about this seat, but also you know the last four years of federal appointees? I have to say that this is the one area where I can sort of without reservation give Donald Trump a check mark. I do like you know the the end product of of what has been accomplished in terms of shaping the federal judiciary. Now, we could have a philosophical debate about whether or not so much of our lives should be shaped by the federal judiciary and by the Supreme Court. I'm sort of one of those small government types who who wish the courts were not as important as they are, Uh, but they are. And so it is important and it has, you know, it has long lasting effects in, in all sorts of ways from the federal government on down. In terms of this Supreme Court seat, And Amy Coney Barrett, I have been an admirer of hers for a long time. I think she's an extraordinary jurist. As everyone knows, she she started out as a clerk for Justice Scalia and sees herself very much in terms of judicial philosophy in the same vein as he, as an originalist and a textualist. And that, to me, is what a jurist should be on that level. So I have no reservations about seeing her confirmed to the court. I think she would she would be a marvelous addition to it. Now, this debate about whether or not 
we should allow a, a president, you know, in the last weeks before an, an election, confirm a new justice. I guess that's a debate worth having, but, you know, the law and the Senate rules allow it. It's not illegal. You can make the argument, I guess, that it's not cool or or it doesn't feel fair on the precipice of an election that might have real consequences and, and might really change the landscape in a matter of a few weeks. But we are where we are and the rules are what they are. And it's legal for them to proceed with the confirmation. And given all of that, and given how Amy Coney Barrett lines up with my own idea of what I would like to see on the court, I'm, I'm good with that. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I'm, I agree. It's certainly not illegal. I think this timeline would be somewhat un precedented how quickly it's going, how quickly the confirmation process would be happening. But, you know, they're well within their rights to do so. And, and Mitch McConnell was well within his rights to block Merrick Garland in 2016. Right. It is a rapid confirmation process if they complete it before Election Day. And, and one could make the argument that it perhaps does not allow sufficient time for, you know, Senate review of the candidate and for and for the kinds of things that you would like to do to vet properly a person who's going to receive a lifetime appointment. And realistically, John, I think we all know that she's been on a short list for the court for a long time. And there's very little about her that's not already known by the people who have a seat at the table here. So um, a lot of that at the end of the day is, is conjecture. There may be folks on Main Street who don't know everything there is to know about Amy Coney Barrett, but there are very few people um, in judicial circles or in D.C. who do not. So it's a fast timeline, but it's a doable timeline. You know, there have been a lot of conversations, of course, about her religious beliefs, and I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. I, I kind of want to come at it from a different angle, which is, you know, it, it's interesting, I guess, 50 years ago, um, I guess 60 years ago now, John F. Kennedy being a Catholic would have been kind of seen as a detractor in the Southeast, particularly among, you know, Baptists and, and Methodists. It's an interesting phenomenon, I guess, that I believe you identify as Southern Baptists, that so many of the justices of the last decade that have been championed by the religious right have not been Baptist or Methodist or other evangelicals, but have been Catholic justices. This would be, I think, seven of nine would be raised Catholic. Gorsuch, I believe, converted to Episcopalian. But so, you know, no mainline Protestants, no evangelicals on the uh, court whatsoever. But this is the court, I think, that it'd be fair to say that most evangelicals one. Yeah, I think so. And, and you're right. There has been a sort of evolution here about with regard to the relationship between Protestants and Catholics in the U.S. and, and the level of trust or distrust, as the case may be, that exists there. And you're, you're absolutely correct in, in remembering that, you know, the way many Protestants, especially evangelical Protestants, viewed John F. Kennedy was with no small amount of suspicion. You know, there was this charge that if you if you put a Catholic in the White House, he's beholden to the Pope and suddenly we're ruled by the Pope or whatever. I think looking back on it, we we realize that, that that was never really a legitimate concern. But I think what we see now in terms of how people see themselves and their personal faith and and how that manifests itself in terms of 
a vision for what the United States should and could be. Evangelicals and conservative Catholics have much more in common than they do in conflict. And, you know, their commitment to the sanctity of human life is probably the bedrock of that common ground. So it doesn't surprise me at all that evangelicals have grown very comfortable with pro-life Catholics who, you know, identify with us on on those issues and, you know, religious liberty issues and a number of other key sort of touchstone type issues that are very important to Christians in both of those camps. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. And I did not realize until probably a week ago when I was reading a lot of coverage of her nomination that if she's nominated, that really makes the court, I think it is almost 80% Catholic at that point. Yeah, it, it would be six of nine and seven of nine would have been raised Catholic. If Biden were to win the nomination, then you would, of course, have a Catholic in the White House as well. So, you know, it's an interesting we've come very far since the Kennedy election, I guess. Indeed. Indeed. You kind of parsed it very specifically, conservative evangelicals and conservative Catholics. So a conservative evangelical wouldn't necessarily feel kinship to Joe Biden's Catholicism. He's sort of the the other end of that Catholic spectrum. You know, I think he considers himself a faithful Catholic, but he has adopted policy positions that are clearly out of step with church doctrine. And within Protestant Christianity, you know, you have mainline Christians who are more politically progressive and more socially liberal. So on both sides, both the Catholic side and, and the Protestant side, you have sort of a spectrum of of belief there and theology and doctrine that that make you know the conservative end of the evangelical world and the conservative end of the catholic world have more in common with one another than they do some of their fellow protestants or some of their fellow catholics none of us can know definitively what donald trump's genuine religious beliefs are he was not somebody who was seen as widely religious before running for office So is it fair to question whether or not some evangelical voters have made the decision that policy-wise what Donald Trump stands for is, you know, more important than where he stands faith-wise? Well, I think that is exactly the argument that many of my evangelical friends who are Trump supporters have, have made to me over the last four years that, you know, they they are not naive about who he may or may not be as an individual. They do see it as as sort of a, what would we call it, a Faustian bargain where you, you align yourself. With a devil. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that's too harsh. But he is a man who has lived a life that is wildly out of step with, you know, the the values and the moral codes of evangelical Christian faith and has made public statements about, you know, not seeing a need for forgiveness and, you know, not really seeing a need to pray, you know, things that are just like deal breakers, you know, to the tenets of our faith. But, you know, he'll he'll stand up and say, I will defend you. I will defend your right to be you. And I will defend, you know, these key things that are very important to you, like the sanctity of human life. And so, yeah, they, they've made the decision that achieving the ends 
is the more important thing and is the better course. If there were no cost attached to that, I could say so. But I I think sometimes we're overlooking the fact that who we align ourselves with and how enthusiastically and wholeheartedly we align says a lot to the world about what we truly believe and how consistent we are with our own worldview and our own expressions of faith. And so I think you have to be extraordinarily careful there as a Christian to be honest about what you're doing. And and there are some conservatives who have been honest the whole time and have said, I, you know, I harbor no, no delusions that Donald Trump and I have anything in common really with regard to, you know, our relationship to God or our religious beliefs, but he is useful to us. And the alternative is scary to me. So I'm going to go with this. You have another sect of conservatives who will look you in the eye and say, he is God's man. He is anointed. You know, you see these pictures floating around where people have painted him like sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office and like Jesus is standing behind him and guiding his hand as he writes, you know, just like extremely suggestive imagery to say that he is God's anointed and that he is, you know, authentically a part of the body of Christ, I guess. And I'm not comfortable with that, obviously, but I do draw a distinction between those two types of conservatives. You know, the one who who will tell me, you know, with, with honesty, look, I, I know we, there are problems here and I know there are costs attached to this, but at the end of the day, I think it's the best option on the table in front of us. And I can tolerate that a lot more than the person who tells me that, the sun is shining when it's clearly raining. You know, I <laughs> I just, I can't get on board with that. And I feel like those people in, in that latter camp who, who try to promote and present the president as something he is not damage the credibility of our faith. And, and that to me has a long-term consequence that is even greater than the long-term consequence of any particular, you know, legislative act or Supreme Court decision. And that's just me. That's that's my Christian worldview bleeding through and my sort of eternal perspective on a lot of these things. But that's that's what gives me pause about their their position and their approach. This is kind of teed up this conversation perfectly because I want to talk a little bit about how the Republican establishment has responded to Donald Trump and how the Southern Baptist Convention's establishment has responded to Donald Trump using SBC specifically because they carry so much weight in the South and because, you know, you are a member of the SBC. But let's start with the Republican establishment. You know, we've seen at least two camps. We've seen what I'm going to say is the Bush, McCain, and to a lesser extent, Romney camp. Cindy McCain has now endorsed Joe Biden. The Bushes have gone pretty silent since 2016, although Barbara Bush has certainly made her opinions known. And then you have, you know, he is probably most indicative of it, the Lindsey Graham camp, you know, somebody who was the establishment in 2016 and, and has contorted himself dramatically from a position that he once took that Donald Trump is abhorrent to, you know, being lockstep with, with Donald Trump. How do you respond to watching, you know, these party leaders who 
several of them were the standard bearer for the Republican Party. And so few of them showed up at the RNC. It was striking. You know, you had some of the Republicans who had once run for president appearing at the DNC instead. Yeah, that tells you how out of sorts the GOP is in this moment. I'll tell you what I see and what I hear, because, you know, there's there's what people will say on the record and then there's what people will say off the record. And what so many mainstream Republican candidates and long-term, you know, Republican office holders will tell you off the record is that they do see, you know, the, the Trump era pushing us into some populist ideologies that they're not comfortable with. Certainly his style of leadership they're not comfortable with, but the polling tells them very clearly that to cross swords with him, particularly in a state like Alabama, that's so deeply red, is is political suicide. And so they have adopted the position that they will play nicely and, and, and hope that this ends soon. And so they they just keep rowing the boat and smiling and waving and pretending that everything's okay and that this is a normal era of Republican politics. And, but they will tell you privately that their hope is that it would it would end soon and we would get back to an era of having a, a more authentic conservative and a more principled conservative as the standard bearer for the party. But they realize, and I think they're politically correct to realize that to to get out front and to say that, you know, would cost them their offices, would cost them all the power that they've, you know, accumulated over however many years that they've been in politics. And they're not ready to do that yet. They think they can outlast this and bring it back. I'm not sure you can bring it back. There was a time in this first four years of the Trump presidency that that I felt sure that if he was a one-term president, we would snap back and everybody would be like, oh, what was that fever dream? Let's <laughs> let's move on. I, I really don't know. I think he's left a, a fingerprint on Republican politics and on conservatism and on the culture that will take longer to walk off than than some people believe. Now, I may be proven wrong. I may be proven wrong. And he may win a second term. And I think if he wins a second term, his long-term impact on who we are as a party and what people will label and consider conservatism in the United States may be changed for a generation, at least. I, I don't like that idea. I liked conservatism as I had it before. I mean, to use your terminology of of this Faustian bargain, you know, do you think that voters in places like Alabama, if the majority of the politicians who they know locally, who they trust locally, if they said, oh, no, what what Donald Trump is saying is is wrong and, you know, is bad. Do you think that local voters really would choose the president over over the politicians that they've known for a long time? I mean, I, I guess that like that's where I have pause is by furthering that narrative, you're bolstering Trump you know, by saying like everybody else is lying, but Trump's telling the truth, then like it gets harder and harder to walk it back. It, it does. But I think, and and I've been as, as shocked by it as you, that people, and I guess you can credit his media savvy for this. They've bought into the character that he has created and decided to play 
in this moment. This is, you know, his greatest reality TV experiment to date. And and the the case could be made that it that's been a smashing success by his standards. And his mm-hmm. standard is to control the narrative, you know, to control the media story. And for the base that he's trying to reach, he is very able to control the narrative and, and the media flow of information because our media in the United States has become so partisan and we live in separate bubbles where we don't even have shared facts anymore, which is, I think, a tremendous danger to us as a democracy. But, you know, conservatives watch one or two news sources and progressives watch another batch of news sources. And he's able to very, very well control the messaging that goes on in those conservative news feeds and and so <laughs> it is what it is. But yeah, I think rank and file conservative voters, it's a hardcore 30% of them, 35% maybe, do believe in him more than they believe in the local politician that they've known for 25 years who might differ with him. A lot of religious individuals, a lot of religious leaders have certainly aligned themselves with Donald Trump. It'd be overstating it to say that the SBC has distanced itself from Trump. But on a lot of policy issues, the Southern Baptist Convention, I think, has taken steps in a different direction from what Trump has been offering for the last four years. Okay, what you have to understand about the SBC and what makes us unique among, you know, Christian denominations in the United States is that we are not a top-down organization. We are a convention of autonomous churches. So we do have an executive committee that sort of oversees things, but the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't dictate downward to its churches what our official positions are going to be on this thing and that thing and the other thing. We do all ascribe to and uphold our our common document, the Baptist Faith and Message, which was last updated and ratified in 2000, I think. We as a convention, and, and I'll, I will give our current SBC president, J.D. Greer, a great deal of credit in how he has handled it. He has tried to keep the focus on the gospel. You know, the theme of the last annual meeting of the SBC was gospel above all, to sort of turn our eyes back to our gospel mission. And if in completing our gospel mission, we can shape the culture you know, in the public square in some other ways, great, but the gospel mission has got to come before the politics. But there have been some key moments, I think, where those voices who have leadership positions, if not authority in this way in the SBC, have have taken a moment to draw distinctions between what we see in the scriptures and what the Trump administration was putting forth. And I think one key issue where that where that came to a head was immigration and giving um, safe harbor to refugees. You know, the, the scriptures are littered with commands to, you know, consider the sojourner and the refugee and to, to show grace and to show hospitality. And while most conservatives and evangelicals do understand that there's a tension there and we do have national security concerns that should be taken into account. We also don't want to demonize or be heartless toward people who are coming here seeking a better life and that we have an opportunity to share Christ and to share the love of Christ with people who are 
in, you know, crisis, essentially. And uh, so, I, you know, there have been some key voices, Russell Moore from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and J.D. Greer and some others who, who have said from time to time, if we are truly pro-life, if we truly believe that every single individual is created in the image of God and thus, you know, holy and, and sacred and special from the womb to the tomb, we have got to at least talk about these things differently than this president is talking about them. It cannot be this red meat, you know, they're rapists and murderers narrative that is completely dismissive of, of the crisis that exists for men, women, and children, many of whom, you know, are, are in pain and, and are not criminals and rapists and need our help. And we have the resources many times to provide that help. So um, I, I've been proud of, of those leaders in the SBC who have, who have used their platform and their voice in those key moments to say, hold up, let's talk about this. Let's not just swallow hook, line, and sinker what the political world that most of us live in would dictate to us in this moment. Well, and it seems like another one of those moments where you could potentially draw a contrast with the president has been the response to you know, the George Floyd protests over the summer. I saw recently that the SBC is considering a name change to Great Commission Baptist. I don't know how seriously that process is being considered or how far along it would be or what, what that would take. But, you know, that that's a stark contrast to the way that Donald Trump seems to kind of have leaned into and embraced a Confederate symbology. You know, a little backstory on that. The term or the name Great Commission Baptist was actually passed by resolution by the SBC several years ago. I think it was 2012. And even then, there was a recognition by, you know, a number of African-American SBC pastors and others who just sort of have their eye on the culture and the world that the name Southern Baptist Convention had some negative connotations to it, and it was a stumbling block in some ways to who we wanted to be and how we wanted to minister to the world. And so they didn't change the name of the convention, but they offered it as a, as a sidecar and, and said to churches, we approve the usage of this terminology. So if you want to identify as a Great Commission Baptist Church, or call yourself Great Commission Baptists, we think that's that's a great descriptor for who we want to be. And so they even, you know, they created marketing materials, and those things have all been sitting there since 2012. And, you know, there might have been a handful of churches globally who took advantage of that in 2012, but all of a sudden, in the moment that we're living in in 2020, there's been a renewed interest in maybe some of us, and it's up to the individual autonomous church. It's not the kind of thing that'll happen wholesale from the top down. But some of these churches, you know, given the demographics of their community or the demographics of their church body or even just their heart for wanting to be seen as open and accessible to people from all walks of life may in 2020 say, you know, that, that makes sense for us and we want to do that. And I think it does make a lot of sense. I, I don't have any romantic attachment to the name Southern Baptist Convention. I, I'm not ashamed of my regional heritage. You know, my family's been in the South for, you know, umpteen generations, but 
you know, that is not my primary identity. My primary identity is as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I'm, I'm fine with making the fact that I'm a person who's about the Great Commission, the lead car in the parade. And that's our show. Thank you to Jamie Harrison and to Dana Hall McCain for joining us and to you for listening. Now, if this is your first episode of The Reckon Interview, we hope you'll subscribe and stick around. We've dedicated this whole season to exploring the ins and outs of Southern politics and history and how it shaped America. You won't find another show like it. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me, R.L. Nave, and it was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you've got ideas for future guests or episodes or any feedback, please send us an email at reckon at al.com or tweet us at at John Hammontree and at R.L. Nave. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.